Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, the notion of a final battle is built into the fabric of our culture. Look at all of our biggest stories. Think about Lord of the Rings, The Avengers, Harry Potter, Star Wars. And modern cinema has made it possible to portray these scenes with all of their epic proportions. The forces of good and evil assemble off and off on this vast battlefield, surveyed with sweeping shots of stunning magnitude. And the bad guys seem to always outnumber the good guys with their faceless hordes of monstrous minions. And usually the battle tilts in the favor of evil for the majority of the sequence. As the tension builds, it truly seems like all could be lost. But then, with some act of selfless heroism on the part of the protagonist or the arrival of one more ally, the tide of the battle is turned, evil is defeated, a new day dawns in the ruins. And often, these scenes lay in their starkest juxtaposition the contrast between good and evil. And when we watch one of these scenes for the first time, there's a sort of spoiler alert that's going off in our heads, right? I mean, we kind of know how the story is going to end. The forces of darkness can't win the day, can they? But even with that knowledge residing deep in our bones, we still watch these scenes unfold with eager expectation and suspension of, dis- of disbelief because because we know we're not just looking for the outcome. We're not just looking for the sum or the answer at the end of the problem. The way the victory is won, the way that the battle unfolds has everything to do with the nature of the battle itself. The good guys are the good guys because of the way they go about things. It would be weird for the end of one of these epic movies to feature the leader of the good guys sending several of their troops to their deaths in order for that leader to escape. That would be strange. That would start causing us to question the character of the good guy. That's something the bad guys would do, right? And at the same time, it would not be weird at all for the leader of the good guys to sacrifice his or herself so that the battle could be won by their side. Again, the victory is won, and the way the victory is won has everything to do with the nature of the battle itself. In Revelation 19, we arrive at this kind of scene. The stage is set for an epic battle. The imagery is brutal and slightly bloody, and in many ways, this text will confront us with the question, how does the end of the story, as, it, as we begin to look towards the very end here in Revelation 19, How does it make sense of the middle? How does the image of a final battle where God is leading the forces of good against the forces of evil align with the picture of the cross where Jesus gives of his life, dying for his enemies? And what does it mean for our life in the present? I don't know if you remember the movie John Q. But in the movie John Q, Denzel Washington plays a desperate father. His son has a terminal illness, but an illness that could be cured with an operation. 
But the beginning of the movie features Denzel Washington as the father getting all sorts of rejections. Rejections from the insurance company, rejections from the healthcare providers. He understands that he needs a, a procedure in order to save his son and that that procedure is available, but he doesn't have the money to pay for it. The story builds and we see Denzel Washington's character as the, the sort of noble and, and model father willing to do anything for his son. And during the movie, Denzel Washington's character, so fed up with the helplessness, turns to a different way of going about things. He takes the hospital ward hostage. He pulls a gun, brings in the surgeon, and demands that his son be attended to. And it creates a bit of a tension for us. Do the ends justify the means? And in many ways, we see this going on in Revelation. Uh, it's such an important question uh, because if Jesus, the one who gives of his life, saying, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing, in the middle of the story, at the end of the story, then picks up a sword and begins to wield it against his enemies, it begins to call into question, what does it mean for the cross to fully narrate a revelation of God? Is it just that God is waiting it out and eventually all of our sort of cultural expectations and maybe even our worst fears will be realized is that God really is a vindictive God. God really is, uh, his, his patience really does run thin and then he turns into a destroyer. And you might see how this has everything to do with how we live in the present. As we've seen, Throughout the course of the last several years, specifically as it pertains to the political engagement of those who claim the name of Jesus, there's been an impulse, and often when you talk to people, there's an impulse to accomplish what seem like good things with questionable means. But if God changes the way that he comes to us in the book of Revelation, then maybe that's not an unreasonable approach. Maybe trying to accomplish good political ends by questionable means is kind of in line with the scripture. Maybe the end is really all that matters and how you get there is sort of irrelevant. So the questions for us today, does God ultimately resort to violence to accomplish his ends, to accomplish his purpose and his will? Much misunderstanding has been wrought by Revelation 19, but today I simply want to proclaim the good news that the God of the cross is the God at the end, and that infuses our life in the here and now with an incredible amount of purpose and hope. So let's look at the text together and see what might be happening here as we set the scene for this epic battle. Turn with me over to Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. John writes, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they said, Hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. Now, 
straight off, the language is going to strike us, right, as exceptionally harsh. But we have to read the story as it builds to this moment. In Revelation 17, the center of imperial power, the apparatus of the city of Rome and all of its economic and political might are portrayed as a prostitute, as a whore. And Revelation 18 illustrates God's judgment on their claims to power and authority. Revelation is helping us to see at all turns the true nature of things. These sort of human structures or these human structures that are embodied by demonic powers, Revelation is unmasking them and saying, look behind the veil. Here's what's really going on. And for the people that John was writing to, Rome, as we've talked about throughout this series, seemed ultimate. It seemed like it had all power at its disposal. And what John is doing is saying constantly that Rome, with all of its exploitation, with all of its brutality, is at its heart an unjust regime, is at its heart something to be resisted, is at its heart a tool of antichrist forces. And so we have to understand this is what's going on here in Revelation 19, that John is helping us to see the true nature of things. And we will cover this uh, in a previous episode of this teaching series if you go back and you can look at the teaching on Revelation 17 and 18. We'll continue to Revelation 19 verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and all who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In contrast to the image of the prostitute that is applied to the Roman Empire and to imperial power in general, John depicts the people who have been clothed with bright pure linen, elsewhere described as those who have had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. He depicts them as a pure and spotless bride prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The banquet is laid out. But in the story of Revelation, if you've been following, there is still business that must be attended to. We met the unholy trinity beginning in Revelation chapter 13, that of the beast, the the beast of the sea, the beast of the land, and ultimately the dragon. These forces that oppose God's will still must be confronted and defeated. And so John narrates this defeat going on in Revelation 19 verse 11. Let's look together. Then I saw heaven opened. And there was a white horse, its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed 
in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is depicted as a rider on a white horse, a war horse. He is called faithful and true, and his eyes are filled with the fire of discernment and purification. He has many crowns on his head, symbolizing his great authority, and he has many names. And it says in this text, in verse 13, that his robe is dipped in blood. And he has a name inscribed on his leg that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There was a pastor named Mark Driscoll who started a bunch of churches in Seattle. And he said of the Jesus here, In Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. He went on to say, I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. Is Mark Driscoll right? Is that what's happening here? Has the one Jesus who counseled us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, and gave his life on the cross now become a vindictive pride fighter? Is there some dissonance here? Is he bent on the blood of his enemies and on vengeance? Is the invitation to the banquet of the Lamb stained with the blood of the world? I think Pastor Mark Driscoll is off base here. And I think it's important for us to look closely at what's going on because it has everything to do with with who God is and what it means for us to live as his people. Look again at the description of Jesus that we just read about in Revelation 19. His robe is dipped in blood. But remember, the stage is being set. Jesus shows up as the rider on the white horse, like an image from the end of the Lord of the Rings, the last battle in Lewis's uh, great Narnia series. Jesus shows up for the battle. He is on his way there. The battle hasn't started yet. The fight hasn't started. The blood then can't be that of his enemies. It has to be consistent with the image of the Lamb that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, His own blood. Jesus is marked by the fact that He has overcome the world by His blood, and His followers are marked by the fact that we overcome the world by testifying to that victory and by the blood of the Lamb. The sword, contrary to Driscoll's description, is not in Jesus' hands. It's coming out of His mouth. The rider on the horse is called faithful and true, and the sword out of his mouth strikes down the nations and establishes his rule because in this scene of battle, Jesus is confronting the deception that has insidiously infused itself into the fabric of creation ever since the garden, ever since the serpent asked Eve in Genesis chapter 3, did God really say that? Oh, you will surely not die. There has been a contest that has been playing out over the course of history between truth and lies. And Jesus is the truth, the one who is faithful and true, riding on the white horse. In Revelation 1, he's described as the faithful witness. And now, here in Revelation 19, his witness, his testimony becomes judgment. Imagine this scenario to see what's going on here. You see, Jesus is not turning in to a vindictive judge, 
but the truth is being displayed and declared for all to see. And in that truth, there is a witness to salvation, but there is also a witness towards a way that leads to condemnation. Imagine it this way. Say you had somebody who, you know, a friend in your life who didn't believe in gravity. Most days, they probably could go on about their day quite well. But say you took a trip to the Grand Canyon. You're standing at the edge of this vast chasm, and they start going on again about their anti-gravity, anti-grav beliefs, right? And if they say, look, if I walked right off the edge here, I wouldn't fall. I I would just float. And you tell them the truth. That, in fact, the opposite is quite true. And they insist, yet even... Uh, in opposition to all of your protestations, they say, well, no, look, I'm going to walk right off the edge here. They insist that they're right, and they proceed to try to demonstrate that they are, in fact, right. And in that moment, your friend that doesn't believe in gravity will face the consequences of the illusion that they have bought into. The lies, full ramifications will be shown. This is so important, Ecclesia. God has not changed his approach here in Revelation 19. He's not fed up. His patience has not run out. But look at what Richard Bauckham says about what's going on here. The judgments of chapters 16 through 19 are primarily aimed at destroying the systems, political, economic, and religious, which oppose God and his righteousness, and which are symbolized by the beast, the false prophet, Babylon, and the kings of the earth. But those who support these systems, who persist in worshiping the beast, heeding neither the call to worship God nor the threat to those who worship the beast, evidently must perish with the evil systems with which they have identified themselves. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 44. Then Jesus cried aloud, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. Do you hear that? Jesus' call is for everyone. Everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. He goes on in verse 47. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus is saying, look, I didn't, there's no judgment that is implied here. What I'm saying is I'm going to narrate the truth. And at some point, at some point, that testimony will turn in on those who reject it. We struggle with this concept of judgment. And many, due to the teachings of the church throughout the course of history, have lived their lives of faith afraid, terrified of the specter of judgment. In our own modern era of American Christianity, much talk of judgment has been cast away. Uh, But Revelation 19 is fairly clear here. There is judgment that awaits, a discerning, a welcoming of some things, an embracing, as Ephesians says, a recapitulating all things under the headship of Jesus. That is the vision of the New Testament. But there is also a rejecting of some other things. So we have to ask the question, How do we understand judgment, and how do we avoid judgment? 
The passage here is assuring us of two things that I think it's really important for us to grasp, but it's so important that we pay attention to what's actually unfolding here in Revelation 19. So first of all, though we talked about the scene is set for an epic battle, the battle doesn't live up to the setting. You know, Jesus shows up on a white horse. It seems like it's going to be an epic throwdown. But John is not narrating a vision of a confrontation that's in doubt. And it's not just that the general sense that we all feel when we watch a movie or we watch one of these epic last battle scenes, we all have this sense that it's all going to work out. This is not what John is saying. John is saying Jesus, his robe dipped in his own blood, has already won the victory that is for all of time on the cross of Calvary. The Son of God gave his life for the world. Now all that's left to do is to deliver the final blow to the dark forces that are arrayed against God. And all that Jesus has to do in that respect is to speak the word of truth. Jesus subdues the beasts and the dragon with the sword that protrudes from his mouth. The revelation of the truth is the two-edged sword that brings life for all those who believe and submit themselves to the life of the Lamb and his judgment against every force that would set itself up in opposition to God. There is justice. Every wrong will be righted. Those who have suffered under the weight of oppression will be lifted up. And friends, this is good news. Think of those who have suffered unjustly. Think of those who sit on death row, falsely accused. There is a sense of injustice that gnaws at us. That when the truth is brought to light. But what the Bible is also doing is it's telling us that our true enemies are not people. Yes, people give their allegiance, their power, their authority, their worship to these forces. But ultimately, as Revelation shows, and as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, our enemies are not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities in high places. But Revelation is telling us and assuring us, and is preaching to us as good news, is that there will come a day when every wrong is righted, when those who have been oppressed will be lifted up, those who have suffered under the weight of the thumb of other people's systems that benefit others will be raised up. The Bible, throughout the course of its narrative, anticipates the judgment of God as good news to the poor. Jesus offers his own judgments, on the Sermon on the Mount, as he pronounces blessing on the poor, on the heartbroken, on the weary, those longing for justice and righteousness. And here John repeats Jesus' beatitude, as the angel tells him, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 is assuring us that there is a day where the truth will win out, where the lies will cease where God's truth and his victory will be made known to all. And this brings us to the second thing that this passage is telling us. In the midst of judgment, in the midst of God's truth, discerning light from darkness, God is calling us. He is inviting every single person. As Jesus said in John 12, everyone who believes in me. And the passage here that we just read, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, may strike us. Blessed are those who are invited. Have you ever had the experience of not being invited? 
the sense of shame and betrayal that we all have endured at one time or another, the sense of being left out. And now we have social media to show us how truly left out we are. Now, that, take that very real feeling and transpose it to the level of anxiety, to the question of the well-being of our lives into eternity. You could see why this sense of being invited would cause us a, a degree of angst. And this passage as it narrates this beautiful image of the marriage supper of the Lamb, also raises the anxious question, am I invited? And John introduces this incredible image that he will spell out over the next couple of chapters, but don't miss this, Ecclesia. Jesus, during his life on earth, wasn't just revealing God when he finally got to the cross. Jesus wasn't just living a life and all of a sudden he went to Jerusalem and was crucified by the Romans and the Jewish authorities. That's not what happened. Jesus was revealing the heart of God every moment of his life. This is why it's so important that the story starts as we'll begin to see in the Advent season with God with us. God's heart is to be with us. This is why Jesus, during the course of his earthly life, was criticized for who he would sit and have dinner with. Look at Matthew 9, for instance, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Ecclesia, Jesus invites sinners to come to his banquet. What good news this is for us, because guess what? We are all sinners. We have all gone our own way, but we are all exactly the kind of people that Jesus wants to share the table with. He's not looking for the spiritually elite, the ones who have it all together. He's calling every person, one and all, to lay down our pride, to stop the charade that suggests we have it all together, to stop relying upon our, ourselves and our own power to provide. Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you invited? Look at me. Yes. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you burdened? Are you burnt out from trying to, to find what it means to live this life? Come to the banquet. Jesus has invited you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Theologian Kosuke Kuyama, reflecting on Jesus' words to those who see him upon their death, said it this way, You've had a difficult journey. You must be tired and dirty. Let me wash your feet. The banquet's ready. Ecclesia, Revelation 19. 
is telling us that there will come a day when the truth wins out, when the lies and the mirages of fake news no longer win the day. It's telling us that there is a judgment that will discern right from wrong, but it's also compelling us to come. The banquet is ready. Jesus longs to share the table with us, and it just so happens that he shares the table with people just like you and I. His invitation stands to one and all. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened and tired and confused, come. All you who have broken your lives with decisions that you've made in the past and you think for you there is no future, Revelation says, come. The banquet is ready. Will you take your seat at the table? Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.